tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The mystery of the water crisis affecting those on the Navy's water system deepens, as not every school or every military installation is reporting problems. We talked to the Honolulu Board of Water Supplies Chief Engineer Ernie Lau and also Erwin Kawada, who is the Water Quality Program Administrator, yesterday afternoon. They had just learned that petroleum had been detected in a water sample from Red Hill Elementary School. Officials are modifying the rate of water being drawn after learning that the Navy shut off its Red Hill shaft on Sunday without notifying regulators. Here's Ernie Lau. This is very concerning. Petroleum and groundwater is not a good thing. I was a little disappointed that they were not able to provide more details. And that's what we're looking for because we need to know what the detailed results were from a lab that can detect down in the parts per billion range because that's what's uh, required here to understand what's happening in this contamination. I think people want to know, you know, is it diesel? Are we talking the jet fuel? Or oil or, you know, gasoline, you know, what it is, what is it? Because that helps toward identifying what is the potential source. Uh, so also the samples taken at the water source that was uh, shut down the Navy's Red Hill shaft, I think will be very uh, very helpful in understanding what what uh, potentially may have created the situation. Well, you asked for a meeting with the military to discuss the Red Hill shaft. Did you have that meeting? Yes, we did. Actually, uh, we requested a meeting with the health department and the Navy at the same time. And I must say, uh, I appreciated uh, Admiral, the uh, Rear Admiral and uh, even the uh, Director of Health. Actually, uh, she had to leave uh, because of a potential conflict, but the uh, deputy directors were there from the health department along with some of their drinking water staff, and the admiral and his team was present. So it was, I think, a a good start to opening up the lines of communication. And we did commit to uh, weekly update meetings to keep us informed about the, uh, the situation. Well, what was uh, your concern? Uh, what was your concern with the news that they had halted drawing from the Red Hill shaft? That was that was extremely concerning. This happened once before, many years ago in 2015, where the Navy did stop uh, operations of Red Hill Shaft for a period of almost nine months and did not tell the regulators or, or the BWS about it. Our concern is that if the Red Hill Shaft is not pumping and we still continue to pump our Halava Shaft as normal, and the qu- uh, question that we have in our mind and our concern is, will this now draw any leaks of fuel into the aquifer across Halava Valley uh, toward our Halava shaft uh, at a more rapid rate. And do we know the answer to that? We don't know the answer because also the data from the monitor wells uh, hasn't been updated. The Navy's network of 17 monitor wells, you know, the data is a quarter or two behind from being posted on the Department of Health's website. So we brought that up in our discussion with the Navy and with the Department of Health about the timeliness of making information available to the BWS and to the public. Well, while we have this early indication that there is petroleum in the water, we don't know where it came from, how it got in. You know, we don't know if this is maybe from the spill from, what was it, almost eight years ago, from that one tank, uh, tank yeah, five. Yeah, we don't, we don't know. Actually, there's a time that we got involved initially, or for Ern and myself, was 2014, the 27,000 gallons leaking out of tank number five. But there's been other events recently, like the May 6th leak, where the Connecting pipelines under the tank uh, broke apart uh, right. because of pressure surge. Yeah, the uh, rupture. And then all, more recently in November, I think around the third week in November, they they reported a discharge out of a drain line of about 14,000 gallons of fuel and water. Right, that's the, the fire suppression system. Uh, yeah, the drain line for the fire suppression system turned out had fuel in it. So the military is trying to find the source at this point. We don't have good data yet to figure out if it's the heavier diesel or the lighter jet fuel or something else that might be stored there in those tanks. But it sounds like we can expect better communication between the military and the health department and your agency. 
I am hopeful if we can keep up these weekly scheduled meetings for the Department of Health and the Navy to update us on what is happening, especially as more information becomes available from the laboratory tests of the samples and trying to see what the Navy and the Department of Health identifies as what was the original source of the contamination. Today's press release, you know, just confirmed that it was some kind of petroleum substance that's in the water that was in that sample that was taken at one of the elementary schools. But they're also taking a lot of samples in the uh, residences of the members of the military that are in Navy military housing there and served by the Navy system. So all that information, I think, will be helpful to understanding maybe what is the potential cause of the problems. Well, I think a lot of people, you know, have been hearing a lot about Red Hill and the fears that you have and the need to protect our groundwater resource, our aquifer. But some folks might be concerned about the response. The military has come under criticism, slow response in dealing with the, with some of these complaints, you know, concerns about just having water tanks available, you know. And, and so, I guess if we were to see it in our aquifer, and we hope that doesn't happen, are we prepared to respond quickly if our citizens all of a sudden can't use the tap water because it's contaminated? That will be a challenge for us because we operate an even larger system. What we're trying to do is take the approach of not even getting to this stage by testing and monitoring what we see in these test wells that are drilled between us and the Red Hill facility. Uh, our Halava Chef and Red Hill facilities to see the migration of the contaminant plume across the valley and to be able to monitor increases in those levels. Uh, that's like the uh, canary in the coal mine analogy. And um, you folks are committed to step up the additional monitoring. Uh, yes, uh, we're looking at even increasing the frequency from monthly, but for now we're going to try monthly. Uh, and depending on the information that we we get from the Navy and the Department of Health, we may need to even up the frequency. In our discussions in the, in the future, as more information becomes available, I may also request that the Navy and the Department of Health require these uh, test wells to be not only tested on a quarterly basis, but maybe go to a monthly basis to get information, timely information about what's happening underground. And if for some reason there is a contamination of our aquifer, Whose responsibility is it to provide that clean drinking water if, you know, a crisis emerges, you know, like we're seeing now? Would the military have to step up and help provide water to the general community? You know, that's a a question I I don't know, but I I would say it is a BWS obligation to uh, support our customers, and we we take that commitment very seriously. So really we're trying to work to avoid a situation like what the Navy is experiencing from actually happening in the future. Customers just, I guess, want some yeah, reassurance that that uh, we what are, we're seeing happen now isn't going to happen to our drinking water. You know, that that is our objective here, to prevent that from happening in that situation. Because, you know, Catherine, our mission is to provide safe and dependable and affordable water service to our community. Protecting the water resources is ultimately the solution here to protecting the safety of our customers' drinking water. And right now, the fuel facility poses a, a tremendous risk to this resource. Given the situation right now and what's been building up over the last six months or, or so here, I think we need to start to seriously look at temporarily immediately moving that fuel out of the Red Hill facility and move it elsewhere until the facility can either be upgraded or new tanks above ground built over locations that does not put the aquifer at risk. Okay. And then, uh, I don't know, Erwin, is there anything that you think is pertinent to address? Yeah, Catherine, I think to follow up on what Ernie was saying, he's absolutely correct. Information, data, test results, from the Navy is extremely important for us to understand uh, the, the condition that's present at Red Hill Shaft and how we're going to adjust our operation in response to what the kind of results that they're getting. So the timeliness of that information is absolutely critical, but as uh, Ernie indicated and um, has always been, our, our task is to make sure our customers is safe and we provide clean drinking water. And that information is going to help us to 
determine the actions we need to take early so that we can not have a situation that the Navy is experiencing right now. And it sounded like the military is, you know, trying to flush the system, but we still have to go back to where is the source? Where did it come from? Yeah, ultimately, you need to get to the root cause of what created this situation. And unless you can identify that root cause, then the uh, the flushing of the system and uh, hopefully clearing that contaminated water out of the pipes and the homes is a good step. How do you prevent that from happening again? And then explain to our listeners the different shafts. You've got the Red Hill shaft, the Wyava shaft, which the military draws on, and the Halava shaft. Yeah, I'm going to let Erwin explain. Yes, we have, first of all, the Navy's water source called Red Hill Shaft. It supplies water to the Navy's water system that is separate and apart from the board of water supplies system. There we have our Halava Shaft, which is one of our largest water sources that serves the board's Metropolitan Honolulu water system from Moanalua to Hawaii Kai providing about 20% of the water delivered uh, to that uh, water system. Both water systems are separate and apart from each other and is operated independently of one another uh, as well. And then the aquifer that is under the Red Hill tank? Yes, both of those sources are taking water from the same aquifer because the aquifer is just one single underground geologic formation that provides water. And in this particular case, as well as all the others, there are all, all of the wells that are tapping the aquifer are, are, are tapping it and getting the water from this, this one single aquifer resource. So if there is a leak that is somehow getting into the Red Hill shaft and the military is trying to shut that off, you just want to make sure that that isn't then creating a pressure situation where it's then drawing contaminants toward our other that system. That is always, yes, that's always been our concern is that any kind of incident or contamination that's occurring at, let's say, the Navy's Red Hill shaft water source, certainly we want to know about it. We want to know the extent of it so that we can make sure that the same situation doesn't happen to our water resource. Catherine, if I could add, this is Ernie. Drinking water is such an important resource needed for our community to thrive, to survive. I would ask the community to stay informed and wherever, you know, they can be involved in uh, encouraging quick action to, to remove this risk, the better. So I really appreciate the community staying on top of this issue Erin and I personally have been on this issue nearly eight years. Come January of 2022, it will be eight years since the 2014 leak. And we have stayed and tried to voice our concerns about the risk of this large facility, fuel facility. It's important that we need the community and others to stay involved too because we've been at it for eight years. At some point, we're going to have to pass the torch on if the issue doesn't get resolved, to the next generation of people that will take up the the cause here in protection of our valuable water resources. So mahalo to the people in the community that are on top of this issue. That was Chief Engineer Ernie Lau and Water Quality Program Manager Erwin Kawada talking to us after learning of the tests that have confirmed some type of petroleum product taken from samples at Red Hill Elementary School. You know, as we first reported earlier this week, there are now three public schools who have complained of chemical odors from the tap water. The latest is Pearl Harbor Elementary in addition to Red Hill and Nimitz Elementary. There is also at least one private preschool. DOE could not tell us how many public schools are on the military system. We asked to talk to the state school superintendent yesterday, but got a statement saying that the department and the schools have purchased bottled water and water in five-gallon jugs for students and staff. It is not clear about reimbursement, and if the military will be asked to pick up the cost, no one is saying what the long-term plan is at this point. (music) 
The military has held town hall meetings over the last two days, fielding the community outcry over what some see has been a slow response to the fumes in their tap water. We thought you should hear some of the family's fears, not only about what they were smelling in the water, but what they were seeing in the water over the past few days. Here's a sampling from both Mwanalua Terrace from Tuesday and from Aliomanu last night. There was something could be in the water because I drank tainted water and got sick. It took over a day for you guys to tell us because I drank water from the day before and it was tainted because I couldn't work yesterday because I chugged a whole bunch of water and got sick at work. Yes, ma'am. So are you sure it wasn't from following days before that? No, we're not sure. Our testing, we had no tests that indicate that the water was tainted in our first reports of an odor uh, were Sunday afternoon or Sunday, and we responded immediately to that. My testing, water bottle was from Saturday morning. So that's, I've not heard that you had an issue on Saturday morning. I apologize for that. Uh, but our first report, we have to respond to, to the information we get. So we had no reports prior to Saturday. You keep discussing the odor. And even in the media and everything, everyone keeps talking about the odor on the official stance. That's the narrative. But there's all this evidence of oil sheens and colorful particulates in our water. Has samples been taken of those type of things? Because I can't, I can't imagine that, that they're not testing that. And they're testing that and not getting any response to this. Because our water is clearly tainted. There's clearly something in it that is of oil based because it's putting off a colorful sheet. And we keep just talking about the odor. We're not talking about the stuff that's actually in it that people can see when they run their faucet and put it in a, in a, a pot or run it through a rag and you have oil in the rag. Like this is what was in our bodies for the past week at least. And nobody's addressing the, the particulates that are in there. They're just saying we're testing and not finding anything and only discussing the odor. And it's not just an odor. So the odor is the only thing that we physically can smell. The sheen that you're referring to, we are testing all water, and uh, the sheen is not resonating. Well, we test in bottles, uh, um, and when you say uh, going through a week, again, the first time we had indications reporting this was Sunday. Understand, uh, ma'am, you might have had, a, you had experience on Saturday, and I'll ask for those details. But yes, we are testing uh, the sheens, and it hasn't resonated. At what point are we going to consider this an emergency when you can't shower, drink, do your dishes, brush your teeth without having bottled water, we're talking five days, seven days, 10 days, at, at what point? It's different with military when we're out on a ship or something, but when you have your, your entire family and you got five kids, it's a completely different situation. I understand, I appreciate that. So uh, when would it be, it is an emergency now, we have a crisis in action team uh, throughout the region and that's through big headquarters, so we're, waiting for these test results back. We're providing water, drinking water. We're gonna wrap up the capacity. Uh, so we're examining this every hour by the hour, uh, every day. And when we get these test results, it will help us zero in on the cause. And if the test results are inconclusive, that is also information that is worth. Uh, after the flushes today, the tap water, uh, the continued calls telling that you still have odor tells us uh, uh, that we still have a problem. Uh, we kind of work this as data comes in. So we need the test results, we need the phone calls, we've done the flushing, we are looking at for other potential options uh, for water sources. But we're getting the bottled water, we're bringing in water trucks that are working in concert with the Army to provide a temporary uh, a, a source of drinking water and, uh, and, and uh, cooking water and, and then looking to expand the showers. But we're taking this hour by hour, day by day. My name is Christy and again, I'm from the Salt Lake Neighborhood Board. Um, so, I, one of my other concerns that I noticed has not been mentioned, um, I'm just wondering about the Moana Shopping Center, the Navy Exchange Food Court, and then the food places on pickup. Has the water been tested or has there been any complaints? Um, I'm not military myself, but I do eat at Moana Shopping Center, and there's families who also dine and eat that are in the military community and outside of the military community that live in the Salt Lake area. So I, I was just wondering, thank you.
There have been uh, no, no complaints from any of those spots at this time. We were actually out uh, at the Hickam Food Court just this afternoon uh, asking those same exact questions. Uh, as we look at our expanded sampling, we are diving into a couple more specific areas, one of which you just mentioned, uh, some of our child care facilities and our schools as well. Uh, so that's something we're expanding into. Man. Thank you for the question. And Honolulu City Council member Radian Cordero, who represents constituents in those affected areas, was also on hand for that meeting. And hear more of the concerns that came out of last night's meeting at Eliomanu Military Reservation Chapel. That every person working on the base is a military person. Dear contractor, how is it possible? I brought you even a sample of water from Monday from my workplace. It smells like fuel. Not only me, but two nurses who took care of me smelled that water too. That's not normal, you can smell fuel. And I inhaled that for nine hours, not knowing we didn't use no water. I inhaled that. When we weren't aware of the situation widespread on Monday. I, I understand that completely, but if it was information through the people, and people know here that on Monday was going on, most of you people here knew about it. What happened then? Where's the communication with everybody else? Like, it's not only neighborhood, it's people who work here also. I understand. But I did not know what you knew on Monday. And I apologize for that. I tried to I tried to call the OH and form. What is going on? What should be step taking? And they told me, because the investigation is still going, and the Navy didn't provide information, they cannot give me no solution what to do. Thank you, but uh, you understand. I understand your position, sir. I'm trying to inform you what I want. Thank you, and thank you, uh, thank you for telling. That's why we're here. Now we know how far back this went, and we facilitate. Not in, can never be enough communication. So thank you for letting me know. I will also take your water sample if you would allow me to. You guys are invalidating hundreds of people's claims, saying that they're having these issues, and giving us water, telling us to boil it ourselves, or go out of our way to take a shower someplace that's not our home. I have to find other places to try to wash my clothes or my dishes, and it's really very difficult for me to stay my mind on the mission because being in the military, the mission is our number one goal. I can't keep my mind on my mission and everything going on at home because I don't have the basic necessities right now for my kids and myself. And so what can you guys do to help those that cannot live in their house and that cannot concentrate on their jobs? And for our soldiers and sailors and airmen out here who might be deploying the next couple of days and have to worry about their families having clean water, and being able to survive while they're gone. I know people have asked for BH, BH, their BH back to be able to get hotels or being put up in hotels. Why is that not happening for people? Because right now, people are having issues. They are getting medical attention. They are asking and having complaints. And we don't feel like we're being heard. We're being told that other people are fine or drinking water. I'm sick. I'm sick, but I can't take the time to go get seen because I have a mission. I have inspections coming up, and I have my kids to worry about. So what more can you do? Because right now, it's not enough. It's not enough for me, and it's not enough for my kids, and it's not enough for my neighbors. So, so um, you know, number one, we are, we do, as a part of the crisis team, action team, we are looking at what are the long-term opportunities to assist folks if they are uh, inconvenienced for significant periods of time due to this lack of potable water. And, and we we're looking at every one of the things we talked about. We're looking at portable water stations, we're looking at partnering with FEMA and some of the other activities to provide services, showers, and, and other things. We're looking at uh, facilities that we can provide for washing clothes, um, and, and as we've already discussed, delivering potable water to convenient locations that you can pick up. Uh, now, some of those things we can do within the command and we've already executed those like going out and establishing contracts on power water some of those are service functions that the army the navy the air force has to make determinations on and those take longer to execute and and, and frankly there has to be there's a, a judgment calls at each level to make a determination of when do we execute those so we are looking at each one of those options i appreciate your inputs um and, and we're considering and we've already established for example, shower stations that are available 24-7 for folks that cannot or choose not to use the water for showers. Uh, we're looking at opportunities on the basis for, for laundry that are not coin operated that we can go. Uh, and we are also exploring opportunities for compensation 
Uh, we don't have answers on that tonight. Those were some of the frustrations the public shared with military leaders across town hall meetings this week. State and city leaders will be holding a news conference today at 1 p.m. to announce a relief effort for affected families in the area. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from T. Oki Trading, featuring Toto Toilets and Jacuzzi and Bullfrog Hot Tubs and Swim Spas, serving Hawaii for 40 years. More information by calling 834-2722. You know, the first of the month was a busy day for Honolulu Mayor Rick Mangiardi. The county moved forward with lifting some COVID-19 restrictions just as news broke of the first case of the Omicron variant in the U.S., And Bill 40 passed its final Honolulu City Council vote in favor of instituting a transit accommodation tax with one-third of the revenue going towards the rail project. Mayor Blangiardi spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote yesterday afternoon. He says in spite of the day's successes for his administration, the news of potentially contaminated water loomed large. You know, obviously, it's the front page of the paper today. I mean, the Board of Water Supply, the story was top of mind. I mean, Ernie you know, conveyed to us the most dire concern, for want of a better way to say it. So it is chilling if you think in terms of uh, the possibilities here. I think the biggest concern, obviously, is, you know, this is very potentially, you know, noxious material in that it, it can really contaminate. And, um, and so, obviously, it's a real public health concern. And We've been living with public health concerns through this dreaded disease since March of 2020. Yet here we have something totally unrelated, but it is of considerable public health concern. Uh, and and so our our interest in this matter is really heightened, and we're just hoping for the best. And again, I don't want to be premature, but you know we all rely on water, drinking water, bathing water, cooking water. I mean, you know, water is our lives, and so. Um, we have a lot of concern. Right, right. I think bringing it into the context of the pandemic and and what people live with every day, I mean, there's risk every time people leave their houses nowadays, it seems like. And now the thought of turning on your faucet. (laughs) Well, yeah, but let's let's hope that, look, I I will tell you this. The one thing we are trying to do right now, ironically enough, or coincidentally enough, I think I should say, December 1st is the day that we've listed the restrictions. We want very much to go forward and understanding that all of us, myself included, have a bit of a you know mental adjustment to go through here and trying to regain some you know normalcy, if you will, to our lives, given the extended period of time that we've just gone through. So, you know, with the holidays being here and trying to open up, we really don't want people to be living in fear. I do want people to be prudent. We still want people to be careful. Uh, I think our local people will be that way, as evidenced by the mask wearing that we see uh, and also the percentage of vaccinations and the ongoing increase in vaccinations, especially among our most vulnerable. So, you know, it's about trying to fight back and, and yell and feel good about where we are vis-a-vis COVID and, and hope for the best. All the while, I know that you're probably going to ask me about Omicron. And uh, so it just seems like, you know, how do we keep people from living in fear right now and, and, and going forward with these kinds of issues. And honestly, I, I don't have an answer for that. I mean, all in one week now, we've got a water crisis uh, potentially, uh, certainly something to be really concerned about. And we have now the threat potentially of yet again, another variant that nobody really can determine what it means, but it definitely has our attention. Mm. Of course, you you, you you got me, Merritt. That was going to be my next question, because as you said, the first of the month is when Governor Ige turned over control to many COVID precautions back to county control in the hands of our mayors. And here in Honolulu, that involves expanded gathering sizes, full capacity at restaurants and gyms, and an opportunity for people to celebrate the holidays more normally than we've seen in a in a while. But in a couple of years, in a couple of years, yeah, crazy to think about. But Omicron first case reported well, look, in the United let me States. Be really clear about this. First of all, anything and everything that we did in reducing restrictions or eliminating the restrictions was done in consultation with the top medical people in the state. This is not done in the vacuum of my office or something capriciously or done on a whim or whatever. I mean, it had to do with data, 
really hardcore scientific data and the opinions of really learned people in this field. So with that, we decided we would go forward. We felt comfortable enough. We were reassured enough, you know, looking at a penetration of vaccinations, looking at where we were with respect to our, our whole experience with the disease itself since March of 2020. We're in a whole different place and actually the safest place we had been since really before Delta happened. If there was one thing that we got from the Delta variant was we were at 60% in July, just hitting 60% of people vaccinated. Delta created created a sense of urgency. So if there's anything that came out of that, we're now in a place, we're here in Oahu, our vaccination rates, uh, as far as percentage of our population, uh, are terrific, um, are, are, are most vulnerable. Uh, we've given out, I think, nearly 250, I think we're 235,000 third shots, whether you call them boosters or for people with immuno disease, but it's clearly a lot of them have gone to our most vulnerable people and that, that counts growing. We're also protecting now our kids five to 12. We're starting to see you know good solid um, numbers there as well. So I think you know all things being equal, that we are as protected now, maybe more so than we have been since this whole episode began. I think we've We've earned through the efforts of this community to go out, get vaccinated, to do all the right things. People have been tremendous in their compliance, and it's been really, you know, amazing for us to be able to do what we're doing right now, which is to say, okay, let's go forward with care and concern. That's why we're going to keep safe access to Wahoo in place. We want safe places, either proof of vaccination or testing, so people could feel good about being in public places. Saturday, we're lighting our Christmas tree here, and Honolulu Holly's open, and we're expecting a good crowd to show up here. We want to instill hope and confidence in people with a sense of renewal, enjoying their hearts as the holidays come. Let's be careful, but let's love one another and let's celebrate the holidays because it's good for the human spirit. Mayor, I appreciate that. And I think that is really enheartening to hear. And I think that that's the balance that we've had to strike because we're two years into a pandemic and now this virus and it's all of its forms is something that we have to live with. Yes. And how do we live? And I appreciate you walking us through a little bit of your reasoning, both in regards to lifting restrictions now and in regards to the pivot you made when we first encountered Delta, when that was on the horizon. In your role as mayor in that office, do you think it's possible to really, at this point, predict what's going to happen with the pandemic? Or do you see your responsibility more as one that's able to nimbly and quickly react to the best information we have at the time about how to keep people safe? That is what we promised the people last week when I did the press conference at the mayor, at the governor's office. I did my own first, was that we would be nimble. We had already proven during the Delta variant that we could be that, that we would pivot. Yeah, we. I can't predict anything. I, uh, we're living a whole different set of circumstances, but the promise of the city is to react accordingly should something go wrong and do right by our citizens. And that is, that is my promise, that is my commitment, and I have a lot of confidence in the men and women in our city to be able to make sure that we can do that and do that very quickly. City Council. They passed Bill 40 in a vote, sits in favor, three against, to institute a transient accommodation tax. The main point of contention in that bill was that a good portion of the funds collected will go to fund HART. And I understand that your office is in favor of this bill. Can you talk a little bit to some of the concerns people have? about? Sure. We had to take a position on it. We took a very favorable position. Uh, after a lot of discourse, including even with the other mayors and the other islands, to determine what their level of interest was, because it was an inevitability. So we knew, first and foremost, that we had to restore, make sure we had an appropriate amount of money uh, that would cover our our, our city, our city, uh, not which is about 45 million. Of course, that's not a static number. That number will be fluid as we go forward. But then we looked at the rest of it as um, a revenue source, and the biggest other problem that we inherited walking into office, and there were many. If you remember in December, the prior administration not only blew up the P3, which was the method of financing, and they fired their, their, their CEO and other related people, but they also announced at that time that Rail would be finished in 2033, and then it was a $3.6 billion shortfall, just to add to, and this is after, you know, its inception since 2004, 17 years later, and we walk in the middle of a pandemic facing that. And you know, what people sometimes forget is we're under contract with the federal government. 
a thing called a full funding grant agreement, the FFGA, with the, with the FTA to build the rail all the way to Alamoana. And if we can't do that, then there's a fine to be paid or even a possible, um, and when I say fine, I mean they're currently holding $744 million. They could restrict those funds. They could actually ask for recapture of breach of contract. So you can't be cavalier when you're under a contract with the federal government for something like that, despite all the missteps of the past. And nobody here is making any excuses. I'm the fourth mayor on this project, and this project will outlive my my time in office. So we'll even be a fifth mayor. And and so at the end of the day, we looked at that and said, okay, that made a lot of good business sense. I have no idea or understanding why anybody would be opposed to that. We are maintaining our core city operations. We're taking the excess amount of money. We're actually even taking 0.25% of that, along with other monies in the budget, it's not the sole monies, to reinvest back into our natural resources, protect the land and you know, protect the iron and anything else that we can do. I can promise you we're very sensitive to that subject. That was Honolulu Mayor Rick Blangiardi speaking with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote. Honolulu City Council Bill 40 now heads to the mayor's desk for his approval. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, celebrating 60 years in Hawaii, featuring Daikin Air Conditioners. Learn more about contractors who install Daikin products at CostcoHawaii.com. It's now time for our reality check uh, with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. We take a closer look at the passage of Bill 40, the hike for Oahu's hotel room tax. Reporter Kevin Dayton joins us now. Hi, Kev. Hey, Catherine, how are you? Good. So this vote, interesting how it uh, shook down. Very much. I think maybe one way of looking at this is uh, yesterday's vote by the city council amounts to basically the third financial bailout of the city's rail project. Uh, as recently as 2012, rail was supposed to cost about $5.2 billion, and But that estimate keeps getting adjusted upward, and the rail authority has had to keep going out and look for more money to complete the project. And most folks probably recall that the Honolulu Authority for Rapid Transportation received previous bailouts from the state legislature in 2015 and 2017, but the estimated cost of the 20-mile rail line just keeps climbing. Right. So uh, it's now expected. Go ahead. No, no, uh, no. I mean, yeah, that was the excise tax hike that was supposed to, you know, <laughs> help. Exactly, and it did help. But it, but it, but the, uh, if the cost keeps going up, yeah, it was both excise and TAT in 2017. Um, and now the project is expected to cost 11.4 billion, and the rail authority now figures it's about two billion dollars short. So the solution that they came up with was earlier this year, the state legislature decided to let each of the counties um, levy a three percent hotel room tax, as the mayor was just discussing. And the Honolulu City Council approved that new tax uh, in a six to three vote on Wednesday. And the new new tax, it's, it's substantial. It's a substantial sum with all of it, almost all of it, paid by tourists. Um, and that may help politically. That may help be more acceptable to people, yeah. Yeah, uh, but, you know, the hotel room tax is already like a 10%, right? This is 3% on top of that. Exactly. This is uh, the hotel room tax, tax now is 10 and a quarter percent. This would be another 3% on top of that. And I don't think that was um, particularly pleasing to the, the hotel industry. Um, but... This is what the legislature did. And as the mayor was just explaining, you know, because the city had lost a significant sum of money when the legislature did some maneuvering um, on the, the split up of the existing tax, it was almost a foregone conclusion that the city was going to have to pass something. I think the controversy yesterday was basically about whether to provide such a significant chunk of this money to the rail project before the rail project has actually explained, the heart authority has actually explained how they're going to balance the books, and how they're going to come up with the full amount that they need. The best estimate that I've heard is that this this tax, this additional tax that the city council is providing would raise maybe a billion dollars for rail, um, but they need two billion. So then the question becomes, how are you going to come up with the additional money? And so uh, uh, who was there from Hart yesterday? Well, yesterday, Hart had three members of the board there. That was very interesting as well. They had three members of the board there. Uh, Kiko Bukowski and Anthony Aalto were both there, and they were both supportive of the tax. Kika said, you know, this project gets completed. This is a win for the whole community. A third board member was Natalie Awasa, who has been 
sort of appointed critic or, or uh, an aggressive questioner of Hart and its finances. And her point was, hey, counsel, you ought not to be providing this money until you've seen a firm plan for how they're going to cover the full shortfall. Um, and she pointed out that, you know, the FTA has been withholding, as the mayor just mentioned as well, about $745 million until they see that the city's got a firm, workable plan to finance the project. And we still haven't seen that. We're, we're mm-hmm. still waiting to see that. That should come at the end of the year. I think everybody's waiting to see exactly how hard it's going to raise the additional money that it needs. Well, the end of the year is just around the corner. Uh, but tell us about the <laughs> <Pretty soon. laughs> yeah. Tell us about the nay votes. Uh, the nay votes were. Um, if you're familiar with the the way you watch council, you'll probably this will be a familiar split to you. Uh, Augie Tolba, Carol Fukunaga, and Heidi Suniyoshi voted against the bill. And voting in favor of it were uh, the chairman, Tommy Waters, along with Andrea Tupola, Esther Kiaina, Calvin Say, Radian Cordero, and Brandon Elefante. One interesting bit about that is that um, Andrea's, you know, a Republican. It's interesting to see her vote for this tax increase. Yeah, very interesting. Well, I guess uh, we'll see uh, what happens. We hope to hear from Lori Kaikina and, uh, and hopefully Colleen next week. But thanks so much, Kev. Appreciate your Thank story. Thank you. We have been listening to Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. To read his full story, head to civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the executive MBA, scheidler.hawaii.edu. Hawaii's fatal COVID count hit 1,000 the weekend going into the Thanksgiving holiday. Well, imagine if all those people were buried in one place. That is what happened for 1,000 Native Hawaiians who died of smallpox. We take you to their final resting spot in Kaka'ako, but first let's set the stage. The epidemic hit the islands in 1853. The first smallpox case arrived in Honolulu Harbor on the ship Charles Mallory. The disease killed more than 5,000 people, and it led to the quarantining of ships at what we know as Sand Island. Back then, it became known as Quarantine Island. It's where vessels would dock, flying a yellow flag to alert the public. It was in quarantine because of a sick passenger. Following the epidemic, laws were passed making vaccines mandatory for residents and visitors. Which brings us to present day. We hit the 1,000 mark of failed COVID cases, and we take you to Kaka'ako, where 1,000 Native Hawaiians who died of smallpox are buried. Cemetery historian Nanette Napoleon was surprised to learn of the mass burial site. It was a cemetery she'd never visited before the summer. The site is off Quinn Lane. It's a tiny street just off South Street and sandwiched behind the Kaka'ako Fire Station and the old brewery building and a senior housing project on Queen. Napoleon had been researching the influenza outbreak here in the islands and came across documents that indicated that the cemetery contained remains of Native Hawaiians who succumbed to smallpox. The cemetery is gated but open to the public, and a plaque says the sacred site is a remnant of the uh, Honua Kaha Cemetery in memory of Native Hawaiian victims of the smallpox outbreak that occurred between 1853 and 1854. There were a couple of grassy mounds and a stone altar, an ahu, to mark the spot. We sat to pause in the quiet of the cemetery as city sounds echoed in the background. Kaka'ako was a thriving center of Hawaiians in the community, you know, and the numbers were really high in this neighborhood in Kaka'ako, really high. If you think about it, how many other burial grounds there were that were unmarked and we don't know about? There are probably others around in the neighborhood because the, the amount of victims was very, very high. And so they, you know, it was a challenge for them to figure out, okay, what are we going to do with these guys, our, our people? Where can we put them so they can rest in peace? So it was a challenge for them to come up with places. And also the reason they died in such huge numbers, especially Native Hawaiians, is because they didn't have immunity to these diseases, partly, and partly because they were of the lower economic spectrum, and so they didn't have access to health care as much as some other higher-level economic groups, especially Caucasians. So more Hawaiians were dying than any other ethnic group. 
Well, we're seated here. It's a it's an area that's fenced off. There's tea leaf. There's myriad trees. Looks like royal palm trees. It's a really very tranquil site. A couple of mounds, and then there's the rock formation here. Yeah, so it's a beautiful site. All of this new foliage was put in at the time of the finding of the building of the ahu over here. So these aren't from the ancient, these trees are not from olden times. There weren't that many trees down here in Kakako at the time. This was, this was a sort of a, not a desert, but it was a very dry area in, in between Honolulu, which was more rainy and things like that. And this was considered like a desert area, <laughs> hot, hot desert area. But they had fish ponds here, they had salt ponds here, in Kaka'ako. It was a thriving, thriving community. And then when other foreigners were coming, there was a lot of Portuguese in this neighborhood in Kaka'ako and other mixes, uh, Japanese, Chinese, all, all mixes. Because this is for the job opportunities, you know, within uh, salt flats and taro farming and all of that stuff. So it was a big draw. But it was a relatively poor neighborhood, but they were rich in culture. <laughs> had a lot of diversity in, in Kakaako. And, you know, even today I hear stories from people who had ancestors who lived in Kakaako, and they have fond memories listening to how the community here was really close-knit. You know, as we look around here, we see the mounds. There's no marker anywhere on the grounds except for at the gate. I guess to think that there were large burial grounds in this area isn't unusual. I mean, when we've seen Kakaako develop over the years for roads or or high-rises, they have unearthed Eevee, and there has been a burial yeah. treatment plan right, right, and right. some special place where the descendants can can come to pay their respects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And a map I see, there's, there was a hospital that says close to here, maybe within one or two blocks, and that could have saved people's lives if they were able to get to a hospital. But at the time of this epidemic in the 1850s, there were only three hospitals on this side of the island. Queens wasn't even here yet. Okay. So there were some small clinics, more or less. There was even a place out in Waikiki. Well, I guess during that time, yeah, not much medical care. And if there was a, you know, major epidemic, it just wiped people out. Yeah, it filled up really, the hospital filled up really quickly. And I think the hospital that showed up on a map close to here was a pop-up hospital. Because I read someplace that uh, the famous historian wrote about this that they had to create these pop-up they called them hospitals but it was really like a small clinic or something medical center because of the overflow and they would have it in some people's houses or somebody barn or something like that or rapidly build something from scrap to treat people but it wasn't as a hospital as we know it so they were you know scrambling on so many levels to to contain this disease by creating clinics for people to go through and hopefully not they wouldn't die, but then they died anyway and they're, here, they're buried over here now. Right? So it was a traumatic experience for the whole, the whole population of the kingdom. And, you know, the Alihi had tried to help yeah. the Native Hawaiians, you know, because they were hit so hard and they didn't have the immunity and right. so many were wiped out. That's right, especially Queen Lili Uokalani. She issued out comments and uh, not dictated, but a plan to stop the virus early on, you know, and, and some people criticized her for that, but she had the foresight to think ahead and say, okay, we need to do something here. We can't just be complacent and just let this thing happen. We have to take mitigation steps to stop the disease. Social distancing, she promulgated, it was important, social distancing. Don't go to your, you know, be gathering up in your family and then cooking emu together and having a big group. Don't do that. And so she got some backlash. But she was able to actually do good, I think. And the historians seem to think that the way she pushed it was the right way to go. She was ahead of her time. But as a monarch, she was trying to take care of her people. Yes, right, right. That was her sacred duty, to take care of her, including their health and welfare, you know. Yeah. What do you think she would think with this current pandemic and how we're reacting to oh it? Oh, my God. She would be in front and center. She would be on this mic instead of me and telling Hawaiians, go do what the doctors tell you to do, okay? Social distance and all those things. It's very timely that we're here today and we're sharing this story.
So I hope people out there listening will come and take a look for themselves. It's a, uh, something that most people don't know about, so the more people that can. And to keep people um, aware and make the connections to what's happening today. Behind the old brewery building, senior housing, behind the Kaka'ako Fire Department. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And in the shadow of the luxury high rises of Kaka'ako. Yeah. With so much modern, when you look, we're sitting in the middle of the graveyard, right? And just looking all around us, there's high rises all around us. So it's this little oasis here. No, a special spot. Yeah. So the next time you are walking in Kanka'ako, stop by the smallpox cemetery with the unmarked graves on South Street. Present-day evidence of a scourge that decimated around 10% of the Native Hawaiian population at the time. Recent Wait Wait, Hari Kondabolu marveled at the great good fortune of Taylor Swift. Man, she's one happy and healthy relationship away from her whole career being destroyed. I'm Peter Sagal. We, too, rely on a constant stream of disasters for our material. Tune in this week to see if we stayed lucky. That's Wait Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Beginning Saturday morning at 11, following Radio Lab. That's it for us. Up tomorrow, Noe Tanigawa takes you into the weekend with an Aloha Friday show. Give us some feedback. Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook. Connect with Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. <laughs>